Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. The sun is shining, the sky is blue, cases of coronavirus are still plunging and the official figures show that a quarter of COVID deaths apparently registered did not die from the virus. They were people uh, who died with the virus, which is one of the arguments we've been having pretty much for the last year. But that basically tells you that of the 126,000 cases um, of uh, death from coronavirus, 127,000 actually this morning, uh, a quarter of those, which would be more um, than 30,000 basically, uh, are actually not attributable to COVID at all. So in that case, uh, we then go back below 100,000 deaths. I wonder whether anybody's going to make a meal of that or to suggest that we, uh, as a country in Europe, are now not doing as badly as everybody thought after all. So it's back to the beer gardens and the pavement seating until next month, though, because Boris Johnson says he doesn't see any reason to speed up the lifting of lockdown restrictions, even though uh, the plummeting numbers of coronavirus infections cases and indeed deaths is so far down from what it used to be um, that he hasn't really got any more excuses, has he? We're now actively looking for something that isn't there in order to prove that it still might be. That's right, we've got testing centres now opening up in London to test people who don't have any symptoms of coronavirus to see whether they have it. Is it just me? Or do you think there's something rather strange going on here? Yesterday, the Prime Minister denied that vaccines were the reason for the amazingly low infection rates, hospital admissions and deaths. No, he said, it's not that at all. It is the lockdown. I said two weeks ago he'd lost his bottle. I today can see no reason to change that view. What on earth is he actually playing at? Is he so frightened of seeing people out and about enjoying themselves that he has to say, it might be your fault if people start dying. It might be down to you. It's all your fault. 0344-499-1000. Coming up later on today, we'll be crossing live to the House of Commons for the first Prime Minister's questions of the new term. We will see a rejuvenated Keir Starmer, uh, or just will we see the same old plodding dispatch box more? Charlotte Ivers will join us for that. She's Talk Radio's uh, political correspondent. Plus, TV presenter and historian Neil Oliver is here with his take on the state of play. And Nicola Sturgeon's latest entreaty to her people, as she sees them, don't bring the virus back from England. Whatever does she mean? There's less virus in England than there is in Scotland. Maybe you can help me. 0344 499 1000. As ever, of course, we want to hear from you. How's it going out there in the shops, in the salons and in the gyms? And if you're running a pub or a restaurant uh, with the bookings flooding in, 
How's it going? 14 million reservations have been made, with a million for July alone, and lots of places booked all the way through until May. It's the kind of good news that we've all been needing. And Jenny Bond joins us as well with the sad news that the Queen will have to sit alone at her husband's funeral, and she'll have to wear a mask. I mean, for heaven's sake, it's the royal family. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, a man we speak to about a great many things, he doesn't always agree with me, which is good. Um, He quite often disagrees with me quite strongly. He is Christopher Snowden, Head of Lifestyle Economics at the IEA. Christopher, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much for joining us. Um, I've seen that you've been slightly dismissive, shall we say, of some of the reaction yesterday to what Boris said when he came out and basically told people, rather surprisingly, I thought, that it wasn't anything to do with the vaccines, that we'd managed to control the coronavirus, when plainly it surely has something to do with the vaccine. Yeah, and he, he did say it had something to do with it. He said that the vaccine's been very important, uh, but that the lockdown had done the bulk of the work, which is quite true. Uh, we've well, seen he more or less said the lockdown. No, he more or less said it was the lockdown, not the vaccine. It, he said it was mainly the lockdown, and mm. that's right. You know, the infection rate's fallen by more than 95% since the start of January, but most of that fall had come by mid-February. The vaccines had a very, very minor impact at that stage they've had more of an impact in in recent weeks as you would expect uh, more people have had the second dose more people have been vaccinated and so you have seen a divergence between rates amongst the elderly who've been vaccinated and younger people who haven't so yeah it's it's made a difference and he did acknowledge that but he was right to say that it's been mainly the lockdown the vaccines really didn't have anything to do with the, the rate in decline back in January because not enough people have been vaccinated. I wonder whether it's got nothing to do with either of those things. And what it has to do with is the way that the virus actually moves about and operates. Because what we've seen over the last year, Christopher, and, and you and I have had many conversations about this, is that it sort of comes, it comes and goes, doesn't it? It ebbs and flows. I mean, for example, we had a massive lockdown in, in, in November. Um, and yet in December, we had the worst outbreak that we've ever had. Well, yeah, we had a lockdown in November and then we didn't have a lockdown in December. Well, no, but no, that's... Just, no, that's not right, because you can't use the lockdown as an excuse to say you don't feel the, the, the benefit of it. Uh, because when the lockdown is on and the, and the rates are going up, people say, oh, that's because we haven't had the two week, the three week lag. Three weeks after the lockdown finished, right, which meant that everybody had been locked down and therefore weren't infecting anybody. Three weeks after that, we had the variant which caused thousands of deaths in January. Yeah, right at the end of that second lockdown, you did have a rise around in Kent, obviously, parts of the southeast, parts of London, as a result, apparently, of the new, more transmissible variant. But, I mean, overall, during the second lockdown, rates did fall in the way that you'd expect. They fell in the first one, they fall in, in, in this one. When there hasn't been a lockdown, generally speaking, with the possible exception of last July, rates have, have gone up. Well, July I mean, and you, August, actually. I mean, there wasn't any problem. It started until, rising in August, it, unfortunately. Yeah, but it did. It was only very low. But very low. I mean, there was hardly any cases of coronavirus in London at all in August. I mean, most of the uh, rises took place in September when the schools reopened uh, and when the universities opened. Yeah, particularly the universities, I think. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, they've been going up. And if you look around Europe, you know, there isn't a sort of seasonal pattern to this as such. Um, I mean, France continued to see rates go up as ours were dropping very, very quickly. Sweden going up. Hungary at the moment has got really high rates. Over in Uruguay, they've got the highest rates in the world, having had nothing for ages. So, yeah, you get these places which seem to be doing well for a while. We were one of them back in the summer last year. Yeah. And people start hoping maybe it's all disappeared, but then it kicks off again. You know, the only thing that is going to bring this to an end permanently is the vaccine. I think Boris does acknowledge that. What he, I guess he was trying to say yesterday 
was that don't assume that this drop is all down to the vaccine, that we've reached herd immunity and everyone can just, you know, charge around and we should just end all restrictions now. Obviously, he's got his road plan. He's got his roadmap uh, that he wants to keep in place. It might be a bit slow for you and I, Mike, but he's got it and he's not saying he's going to slow things down. In fact, if you listen to his whole um, kind of uh, speech yesterday's comments to the press yesterday, he made it very clear that, look, we need to be grown up about this. There will be a rise in infections at some point during the rest of the year because half the population still hasn't been vaccinated. But that's not going to put him off ending the restrictions. But he said people will die. People will be hospitalised. But isn't it interesting, but, though, because he's so wedded now to SAGE, it's ridiculous. He now literally speaks for them, you know, because he said that before. He said when they reopened the schools, naturally there will be an increase in infections. Well, there wasn't. Uh, no, there wasn't. I mean, Sage got that wrong. They've yeah. got a lot of things wrong. They've backtracked massively on their latest model, which was preposterous, really. The, the January models that came out of Imperial and Warwick predicting thousands of deaths a day in the middle of summer just didn't really pass the smell test. And they backtracked massively on that. There's no accountability for these people. They don't lose their jobs for getting no. these kind of things wrong. But those models served their purpose in that it deter they deterred Boris from having a speedier lifting of restrictions than otherwise would be the case the new models are still relatively scary but the kind of third wave that's been predicted there is within what chris witty thinks is an acceptable number of people to die basically the kind of numbers that you would see in a bad flu season and not the kind of numbers that would lead to yeah. there being but they've another also, lockdown i they, think they've, also tapered, they've, they've tapered those a little bit ever since the outrage that, 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 that came about when they said all oh, thirty thousand people are going to die but let's just have a bit of a listen it's not all of what you said christopher let's have a listen to what you said the reduction in these numbers in hospitalizations and in deaths and in infections has not been achieved by the vaccination program People don't, I think, appreciate that it's the lockdown that has been overwhelmingly important in delivering this improvement in, uh, in, the, in the, uh, the pandemic and in the figures that we're seeing. And so, uh, yes, of course, the vaccination programme has helped, but the bulk of the work in reducing the disease has been done by the lockdown. Now, my other problem with this, Christopher, is that I've been out and about, as, an, as I'm sure you have been as well, uh, throughout this whole period of, of, of the lockdown since last March. And I would say that in the last three months, the, the lockdown has been less effective than any other lockdown that we've ever had. There's been more people out and about. There's been more people, you know, even last week before they reopened the pubs on Monday, um, I drove through Greenwich um, and it was as busy as I've ever seen it. It was a nice sunny day. People were out and about. People were walking into shops, going into, um, you know, buying sandwiches, buying drinks. Stand, it was a whole load of people standing outside a fish and chip shop. I think it's not even right to call it a lockdown properly. Well, why are people complaining about it so much in that case? You know, I mean, I think it has been. A, a well, we're complaining about it because that's what we do. But I mean, I think a lot of people <laughs> are just getting on with it. It's been more stringent than the second one. I mean, the schools were closed, which is a, a major thing i mean i don't know how much effect it actually has on the infection rates but it stops a lot of people going to work so it has an indirect effect uh in that respect as time's gone on i'm sure more and more people have kind of started ignoring it started going around each other's houses i think that's actually a very good reason why we should be opening pubs and restaurants yes. indoors i think there's no doubt that, that a lot go. of that is going on yeah but i mean the lockdown has basically ended i mean you can't really say that anyone's under a stay-at-home order now um the lockdown has ended. People can still go to the pubs and restaurants. They just have to sit outside, which is a massive nuisance. So we haven't got a lockdown. What we've got really is what we had for a lot of um, last summer and autumn, which is just the public health people at Sage 
going to war on the hospitality sector again. And yeah. that always seems to drag on longer than the lockdown. Yeah, it really does. And I mean, interestingly enough, when you've got the situation that we currently have, where lots of people are now going out and sitting outside, I mean, I think what's happened here is that Boris has seen the pictures from Soho in particular the other night, some of which are in the papers today, where uh, whole streets have been taken over by tables and chairs and lots of people sitting there. And I think Sage have said to him, you better tell them not to do that or else we'll have to lock them all down again. And I think that's what he's running from. That is quite possibly true. I hadn't thought of that. But yes, I mean, these pictures are from Soho never really help. I have to say, I was in London on Monday and mm. it wasn't like that anywhere I was, right in bang in the middle of, of Westminster. Yeah. Loads of pubs still closed, mm. particularly in London, because it's not just that you, you know, you can't have people indoors. You have to out, have outdoor seating, yes. which very few pubs in London actually have because um, space. No, there's just not enough premium. space. No, exactly right. But Soho particularly seems to have been able to get the permission from the local council, Westminster, I presume, um, to basically pedestrianise the streets because it suits their agenda for greenness. And so that's all fine. As long as you can't drive a car up there, uh, you can sit there and have dinner. <laughs> well, you can have a drink, so it uh, swings around about, doesn't it? But, you know, Soho is not representative of the country. There's uh, still a huge number of pubs no. unable to open and won't be able to for more than a month. And that's the problem, because, I mean, as you and I have often said, there is a collateral um, damage problem here. It's not just about public health. You know, when I see that they've set up, you know, mobile testing centres outside London Bridge Station, which actually say asymptomatic testing centre, I mean, it's almost bizarre to me that they're testing people now who don't have any symptoms of a disease, uh, who may not have the disease, who probably don't have the disease, but they're testing them nonetheless to see whether or not they might have it. Yeah, I don't know exactly what those centres are for. One of the things they might be for are some of these pilot schemes that are going ahead. I'll be going to the snooker at the Crucible next weekend. And for that, I need to take a lateral flow test before and after. I'll obviously be asymptomatic because presumably I won't have COVID. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they're doing a, a huge amount of testing. Some of it, it does pay off. I think this, the testing in schools has probably helped, possibly, but it's all very expensive. Well, I don't think it I mean, has. Well, one, it's very expensive. And two, what is it proving? I mean, what we're finding is the, the levels of, of, uh, of coronavirus in kids is, is minimal. It's, it's barely there at all. You know, they've tested millions and millions and millions of kids and they found something like 6,000 of them tested positive and none of them are ill. So, you know, the reason they're testing them here in London is because Southwark Council has decided that they've found two unusual variants and they want to see whether anybody's got them. But, you know, it's a kind of madness about it. Oh, well, on that, if, it, if this is kind of Lambeth way, I think that there's, uh, there's more rationale for it because there has been a minor outbreak of the South African variant, which came from somebody coming in from Africa. Well, maybe we should stop people coming point. into the country as opposed to testing everybody who's already here. Well, quite. I, I think mean, you know, that would be, be a bit sensible. tougher on the borders. I mean, that's that's where we run the risk of throwing away all our success. Yes. Is if we get a variant that can evade the vaccine, and we really should be doing more, I think, to control the borders. It won't yeah. be popular but with that's... everybody. I know a lot of people want to go on holiday this year, but I'd much rather have total freedom within the country. Than well, I mean, you can, yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, I, I, I don't particularly want either of those things. I'd like to be able to go wherever I want to go, uh, providing that uh, it's safe for me to, to do so. And I think it is safe for most people who have had a vaccine to go wherever they want. And that's the other thing. Boris has kind of made, made it seem as though, because perception is everything, that the vaccine hasn't had much to do with any of this, when at the same time, the lockdown that he refers to was allowing something like 50,000 people a week to come in via Heathrow and disappear into the country without being tested anywhere. 
Well, yeah, and again, you've got Sage and the World Health Organization to blame for this. This is some more of their bad advice. Their view was that, you know, if you've got an outbreak in your own country, there's no point in stopping people coming in from other countries. Mm. It's just not how it works. I mean, travelers per se are more likely to have it anyway. Probably traveling itself is a, is a big risk for catching yeah. COVID. We had a big spike when people came back from Spain last summer. It just doesn't really, again, it's one of these things that doesn't make, doesn't pass the smell test with the man in the street, but it's very popular with experts. But I think even Sage might be rowing back on this a bit we are doing a bit more in terms of trying to keep people quarantined you know this threat of 10 years in prison if i mean you know, this is nonsense, isn't it, Christopher? I mean, it's 10, ab- uh, days. absolute cobblers i mean particularly now that we're getting some more uh, real information which is the question that we were asking an awful lot last year how many people are being registered as dying from covid are actually dying from covid it turns out now that thirty-one thousand out of the hundred twenty-seven thousand didn't die from COVID. So we're going to have to ratchet that number down uh, and we're going to have to look again uh, exactly who has actually died from this disease. And what we're going to find is that by far and away, the most people who died were elderly in hospital and in care homes. Yeah, that Telegraph article was a bit misleading, actually. I mean, the the figure of, uh, I think it's 77% of people dying of COVID rather than with COVID, that just comes from the last week of data. It comes from death certificates where you get the contribute, you get an underlying cause and you get a contributing cause. Yes. And throughout the second wave, that figure's actually been 90 percent. Uh, and even if it's only a contributing cause, it can still obviously contribute. So no, it's not like, as if yeah, not, point- none of these deaths were in any way COVID. But, yeah, of course, you get people who've got cancer and they get they get COVID often right. in, in hospital. And that figure has gone down. Uh, in recent weeks, from 90% to about 75%. I think, actually, because of the vaccine. I think the vaccine has been yeah. a big part of that. The vaccine can stop people dying of COVID. It obviously can't stop them dying of cancer. No. But that hasn't been the but story the, throughout but, but the that, entire pandemic. But I think it has been, because there's been no evidence for me for an awful lot of the deaths who have been listed as COVID-related. Uh, but they've just been put down that way. We know that, because people have told us that anecdotally. We've been told by people who've called this show that their parents or their elderly relatives were said to have died from COVID, and they knew that they hadn't. And so there's no doubt in my mind that there is plenty of scope for reducing the number of people who died. And there's certainly scope for saying that very, very um, unlikely cases uh, of people under the age of 50 are going to drive the recovery. And that's what they surely have to do. They can't keep saying, oh, you know, everybody's in danger. We better start testing people in case they might have something that we don't know they've got. The fact is, it's it's very unlikely for most people who have been vaccinated now to have uh, a very bad illness from COVID. Therefore, let's get on with it, surely. Well, that's basically what I think. And it's also basically what Boris Johnson thinks. He wants to, just wants to do it a bit slower than, than you or I. He is accepting that people will catch this. We, may have, we might have a genuine case-demic on our hands in which there's lots of cases but not many people dying of it right. because the vaccine is stopping people dying of it. We've got 99% of the vulnerable groups have been offered the vaccine. Nearly all of them have actually taken the vaccine. So I agree there's not much to worry about. It'd be nice to get second doses in more arms. There's still a little bit of doubt about how effective the first dose is. But yeah, by and large, you're correct. On the people dying of it, you know, it depends how much you trust doctors. Doctors write this, but death certificates out. We trust them the rest of the time. There might be mistakes made here or there. But I mean, the fact that we have had a very, very large number of people die over the course of the uh, the last year or so from COVID is yeah. undeniable. And the number of excess deaths proves it. So I think arguing about whether it's an underlying cause or a contributing cause is um, is a bit of a waste of time, really. And we don't know any better than the doctors who are right. Well, it's not a waste of time, Christopher, because it's part of the narrative that we've been fed. You know, what is the facts of the matter of these, right? The far and away bulk of people who died were over the age of 82. Well, you would accept that, right? Well, half of them, because that's the average age. Well, so no, half, half well, no, age no, no, well, no, 90% of the people who died were over 82. 
No, the average age of death of COVID is 82. So by definition, half were over and half were under. Well, well, you've still well. All right, let's let's put it this way then. They're certainly over seventy-five. I don't know about that. Well, they um, well they are. I mean, they're much more older people died. Hardly anybody under the age. All right, let me go around the other way. How many people under the age of fifty died from COVID? Very few. Yeah, thank you. So I take your, your general point, but yeah, it's not true to say ninety percent are over the age of eighty-two. Well, all right. But yeah, you're right. It's it's a primarily a disease of old age, and it's primarily a disease that affects people with underlying health conditions. We've, yeah. we've known that since day one. Exactly. So you can't start punishing the entire population for a year and possibly longer. And as Boris said yesterday, we still have to be vigilant. Well, why? You know, we've all been vaccinated over the age of fifty. Right, pretty soon, everybody over the age of forty will have been vaccinated. And if he's saying you're not safe having been vaccinated, then what the hell are we getting vaccinated for? Well, I basically agree with you, and that, that's what Boris has said, and we need to hold his feet to the fire. Matt Hancock said back in January he's going to cry freedom once a vulnerable to being vaccinated, and we've still got all these restrictions. Let's just make sure... He's just you know, crying now at the moment. Isn't he? Every time he goes on television, he bursts into tears. Yes, as some wag said, it was a misquotation. What he actually said was cry freedom. <laughs> exactly, freedom to cry. It is a very bizarre situation, Christopher, though, but can I ask you, finally, uh, before I let you go to do something more useful than this... Um, are you now against a further lockdown of any kind? Because I, I can't remember whether you're for them or not now. I can't see a scenario in which a lockdown would be appropriate. Um, it would take the vaccines to fail, basically, in a, in a catastrophic but they're clearly way. Working, so, no, right? I mean, I think any further attempt to have a lockdown on the basis that we, we don't want anyone else to ever die from this, obviously, I would be you know, to taking to the streets against that. I can't see any conceivable scenario in which a lockdown's going to be appropriate and i think we need to rejoice that boris johnson and chris witty almost certainly feel the same way well let's hope so christopher snowden thank you very much indeed head of lifestyle economics of the institute of economic affairs mid-morning with mike graham talk radio the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio there are some great headlines in the papers today thirst in the queue is the front page of the sun and then, uh, inside uh, they've got a lot of people sitting around uh, having fun Remember that, what that's like? Vast orders. A load of people sitting in Soho, uh, eating and drinking and being merry in Manchester and Leon C as well. 14 million people apparently uh, have now made bookings uh, to sit at uh, beer garden tables over the course of the next couple of months. Extraordinary numbers. Absolutely amazing. Uh, Queen's Mast Farewell is the next story we're going to do because uh, Jenny Bond, former Royal Correspondent, is here. Uh, she's going to talk to us about the funeral plans coming up this weekend, of course, for, uh, for Prince Philip. Jenny, very good morning to you. Hi. I have to say, I was rather sad to read this morning that the Queen will not only have to wear a mask along with many of the other members of the royal family, but that she'll have to sit on her own. Yes, but I don't think she or any member of the royal family would want to be treated any differently to the rest of us. You know, so many families have had to go through in the last few months. So they are making sure they abide by all the rules. Um, yes, she prob- probably will have to sit um, on her own. I mean, she does have people in the bubble at Windsor Castle who are yeah. looking after her and the Duke, about 20 members of staff. Um, and I've been struck by the fact that uh, Brigadier um, Archie Miller Bakewell, who is the Duke's private secretary for the last sort of 10 or so years, he is thought to be one of the few people who's going to be included in that group of 30 who's not a relative. I mean, could that mean, as he's in the bubble, that he's going to sit with her? I think that might be a little odd, but it's possible. But let's face it, she's not going to be completely alone. I mean, she will be just six feet away from one presumes Charles and Camilla and and other members of the family. I just think because of, uh, you know, uh, the Queen and Prince Philip being not that far off from the age of my own parents, and I thought of my my own father on Friday when Prince Philip died, and I think of my own mother, who's currently uh, 96 seven 
um, sitting on her own in the front of of, of a chapel without just somebody to hold their hand. You know? It's it's horrible, but that it brings home what so many families have been going through. Well, it does, and it, and for me, it's it's been a disgrace, frankly, because um, you know I don't want to get into the ins and outs of uh, of COVID with you, Jenny, because that's not what we're here for. <laughs> but but at the end of the day, an awful lot of people have been even worse off than this. They haven't been able to see their their loved ones before they passed away. They haven't been able to see them or go to a funeral at all. Yeah, which, I mean, which is dreadful, isn't it? I think this does put a focus on it. Perhaps, you know, some of us sort of read the headlines, not thought about it. But if we if we do see the Queen sitting there on her own at her great age, almost 95, 95 next week. Mm. Um, yes, it will focus our minds on, on the general suffering as well as her own. Yes. And I see that she's back at work already. She was doing something yesterday uh, involving yes. uh, involving one of her uh, sort of roles that she, that she has anyway. So once again, proving uh, to be a remarkable woman and to be the great sort of uh, uh, the great leader that we all that we all need at this time. What's your take on, on what happens now? Because obviously people will talk about, you know, the succession. People will talk about how long the Queen remains um, in situ. What do you think? Well, I think as long as she's well, um, sound in, in mind, which she is very much, and body, which mm. she also is, um, she will carry on. People may not realise she's a very, very religious woman. Um, and she believes that this is a, a God-given duty to serve, as she sees it, the country and, and the people uh, for her life. Um, and abdication remains something which is yeah, something of a, of a dirty word yeah. after Edward VIII. Um, it's not something she would willingly do. So gradually she's been delegating a lot of her responsibilities and duties to, to Charles and other members of the family. Yes. You know, for a long time now, she hasn't gone, she hasn't gone far abroad, abroad at all, really. Yeah. She does domestic, d- domestic duties and um, events. But uh, Charles is doing a heck of a lot more. And I think that will continue this gradual handover mm. of power. And it hasn't helped um, the, the, the general cause, has it, that Andrew's kind of been taken out of the picture, and uh, as has Harry. So there's two members of the royal family who would otherwise be sharing those duties, who, who basically don't do any. No, they, they are a bit down on numbers, but that's what Charles wants, actually. He does want this slimmed-down monarchy. Mm. And I think, actually, the, the person who's really been stepping up to the plate is uh, Sophie Wessex, yes. who's very close to the Queen, and, as we've seen, um, you know, was almost in tears as she was leaving Windsor Castle the other day. Mm. She's a real close confidant. They say that, you know, the Queen regards her almost as a daughter. And Sophie's a lovely, lovely woman, and she's been working really hard and carrying out an awful lot more engagement. Mm. So... There are there's a sort of wider net now to take the place of Harry and Andrew. Yes, and I mean Andrew came out and spoke the other day uh, for the first time in a while, um, which was you know relatively unremarkable. But there seems to be a bit of a stramash now about whether he's allowed or should wear military attire for the funeral. Well, it's tradition that the the men who who have served um, wear wear their military uniforms. He did serve. He saw action in the Falklands conflict. He was made a vice admiral um, some years ago, I think on his 55th birthday, something like that. I know he is, uh, well, he is facing quite a lot of allegations, which he denies, we Mm. must say. Um, And in this country, you are innocent until proven guilty. Um, So I suppose he, well, he simply is entitled to wear his uniform. Whether the Queen will see it to be appropriate or not, I don't know. I I suspect we will see him in uniform. Um, and it will be a sharp contrast to see Harry not in uniform yeah. because he has been stripped of his military appointments. Though I still don't quite 
to be honest, I really don't quite understand it because he too is a serving ex-serviceman. As, as serving well, exactly. He did, he did serve. serve in, so, it wasn't as if yeah. it was an honorary position, was it? So, you know, it wasn't an honorary So it seems to me he should be entitled to wear it as well. But all the speculation is that he won't and Andrew will. So um, mm. we're just going to have to wait and see. And what are you hearing about Harry's um, presence at the moment? I presume he's in isolation, but he may well have spoken to people. Um, what, what, what do you know? Uh, well, uh, these conversations, let's face it, are private. We we are led to... Well, they, the, they usually are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's true. Um, I think I think they've obviously been in contact on the phone. He's at Frogmore Cottage, Frogmore, mm. uh, near, very near Windsor, but he has to be in isolation. He won't... Uh, if he takes a test on Friday, he probably won't get the results back till Saturday. So the first time they're probably going to meet is uh, Saturday morning. And then it's going to be quite tricky. I mean, before the funeral's not the time for a great heart-to-heart, is it? Mm. And then after the funeral... Um, um, if the Queen does want to have uh, people together, she can only have five um, in, uh, because the rule of six applies. So can they sit outside or something? Um, they can. I mean, but they've got plenty of space out there, haven't they? Yes, yes, yes. How many people can you have outside? Well, I don't even parts? know. I mean, this is the trouble. Nobody knows anymore <laughs> what the rules are. It's like, well, I think it's. Um, I think if you're sitting outside and you're, um, and if you wanted to be absolutely rigid about it, you were socially distanced. You can have quite a lot. Judging by you, the uh, look of Soho the other night, yes, that's I mean true. there was a couple of hundred people in. Uh, it looked like in, in Old Compton Street. In your private gardens, I don't know whether it's still the rule of six. I am equally confused. But yeah. anyway, I'm, I'm, I do think that uh, a funeral focuses the mind, and I think that the boys, William and Harry, surely, surely, will look at the coffin of of their grandfather and think, you know, a hundred years nearly he lived, but yes, life is short and mm. death is, is final. And do we really want to go on having this, this ugly rift between us? I do hope that the Duke um, actually in death brings about uh, a measure of peace and harmony, as he tried to in life. Yes. I mean, a lot of people say, you know, he was blunt, which he was, and rude, which he could be. But he really did try to make peace between Charles and Diana. He really tried to support yeah. them and act as marriage counsellor. And, and I hope that his death will bring the boys back together. And some people are saying, you know, how soon or how long will, will, will Harry stay? Uh, and that may be some measure of how well it goes, if you like, because if he sort of rushes off back to L.A., um, where I think he'd have to quarantine again on the other side. Um, that's not good. But but what's your view of how long he should be staying? Mm, I think his flight is probably booked already, and it's probably pretty quick. Um, I think the hurt is extremely deep, and this will be the first step in a long road back to family harmony. Mm. But it is hopefully a first step. Right. And, I mean, Megan, of course, would be... Uh, telling her friends possibly to say things or not to say things, but a uh, couple of stories that have come out from her side of the, the, the fence saying that she's now willing to forgive the royal family and that she didn't want to come for fear of being the centre of attention. Not sure she's quite getting it yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure either. Um, I, I, look, I, I thought along with everyone else that she was a brilliant addition to the royal family and I still think she, she could have been yes. and maybe... Maybe by some miracle, she still will be an asset to the royal family. She's all the thing, things a modern royal family should be. But I, for the life of me, do not know why they did the Oprah interview, mm. why they wanted to um, make the, their, their pain and the whole family's pain so, um, so global. Um, it, it, it defeats me why they did it. I don't know what they've got, I don't know what they've got out of it. I really don't. Do you know what? I think, sadly, it's going to come down to the almighty dollar. Because in the end, that's why they did it. It was a sort of, uh, it was almost a kind of an introduction to America for him, for everybody to go, oh, 
we've got one of the royal family living here. Isn't that great? And then and, and here's a load of deals. Well, it may be. Um, I am also mystified about them talking about uh, how Harry was cut off and yeah. how they need this money. They've, they've got, I mean, how many millions do you need? I know. Uh, well, I and said, why I mean, you, you know, pay for your own security? some of us were financially independent at the age of 18, you know, and I didn't, nobody <laughs> left me 30 million either. You know, I managed to, managed to get by. <laughs> I know, I know. But now isn't really the time for all this bitterness. And I hope, um, yeah, I, I hope what we'll see is, I'm sure we will. I'm sure, surely. And this family I've known, I've reported on them for, for more than 30 years. Mm. They are, they are different. You can't sort of judge them by normal standards, but by any normal standards, surely this is a time when all attention of every single person will be focused on the Queen and supporting her, and I hope that's what they do. I think that's absolutely right. Jenny, thank you very much indeed. Jenny Bond, former Royal Correspondent, uh, as she said, covered them for decades and knows them very well, knows many of them personally. And, you know, you would like to think, would you not, um, that Harry would only have one thought in his head, and that would be to ensure that the Queen has a day uh, that she will remember for a very long time um, and that he does everything he can to support her in that. You know, let's just hope that that's what he's going to do. And let's just hope that he's going to somehow find a way uh, of smoothing everything over.
Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio. Time to say a very good morning to Mr Neil Oliver. Neil, how are you doing? I'm fine, mate. I, I just think you, you, you might have made me sound a bit like a megalomaniac there. <laughs> <laughs> when, I, when I wrote the world was revolving Yes, I, I hadn't really thought of that, actually. Um, yeah, yeah. It was more about, it was more about you know, I, I felt, you know, politically, I haven't, I was never particularly interested in politics. Yes. And I, I certainly haven't moved. But somehow or other, I've ended up on the far right. Well, uh, I mean, haven't we all? But that's, but that's, yeah. like, that's not, not your words, though. These are other people's words. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, I, I, as far as I'm concerned, I'm where I always was, which was somewhere sort of vaguely in the middle. Yes. Well, uh, I prefer vaguely, to think of... Vaguely like, disinterested centrist, but I've, I've suddenly become characterised as, you know, as far-right yes. extreme. Yes. No, I, I prefer to think of you as very firmly placed in the land of common sense, which is where we should all be. <laughs> yes. I, I um, my, my views over the years have always been moderate, verging on the disinterested, really. Hmm. I've always just wanted to be left alone. I've never been uh, particular. I've never wanted an ideology to live by. I've never, I've never really looked for political parties, any political parties or any movement uh, to give me the roadmap to use an objectionable term uh, to my life. Yes. I've just quietly got on with things. I'm not interested in government. I've always wanted to be left alone by government, but but somehow or other, by by being like that, and I think more than anything else, because. I have spoken out over the last 12 months about being very concerned about my own freedom. Mm. Just just to go about my life, you know, just to go to the cinema and the shops and get on a plane yeah. when I want to, uh, uh, th- th- that has been compromised. And and simply by being prepared or, or without really thinking too much about it, having spoken out and said, hold on a minute, I don't think that's fair. Yeah. But now it seems that, that demanding or insisting upon personal freedom is a sort of far-right quirk. I know. I know. It's it's unbelievable, isn't it? And also the way that the polarisation of society has kind of played out in as much as, you know, somehow all those people that seem to have FBPE in their uh, header on Twitter want to keep lockdowns going, want to wear masks, tell me I'm dangerous and killing people for having done a show uh, in a a pub garden, you know. And it seems to me that we're surrounded by these people. I mean, I'm like you. I always lived by P.J. O'Rourke's kind of uh, uh, phrase, which was don't vote. It only encourages them, you know, because it's absolutely true. I don't wish to have politicians in my life. I don't wish to have them telling me what to do. When Boris comes out and says, you know, oh, this is nothing to do with vaccinations. It's all to do with the lockdown. I know for a fact that there hasn't been a lockdown in many parts of this country. Well, yes, I I could definitely uh, testify to the same uh, events that, that, that you have you know mm. the, if the the lockdown has leaked like a colander where yeah. i am without without a doubt and obviously right. everything shut i mean i would stress to everyone you know listening up here in scotland there's we're, we we can't go to the pub yet and that's that, that's not there yet for us uh, and everything's as locked down as it as it ever was but but having said that people going about and meeting up and being in each other's company and whatever i'm yeah definitely definitely seeing that all, all around me as as you are the thing, this thing, this change of tack that, that Boris Johnson made in the last day or two about it's not been about the vaccines, it's been about lockdown. I really don't understand because I would have thought the single, the single uh, success that, that his regime has had is the vaccine mm. programme. And it's, you know, unprecedented, unequal uptake, so to speak. And surely a remark like that at this time, when they're moving into the 40-somethings, could only uh, tend to make people less inclined to, to go for the vaccine. Yeah. 
when the, when the big push has been and, and has successfully been about encouraging people to take a vaccine, why would you say well, that, that's not what's worked right. anyway? Well, exactly. It's all been about, doesn't that make people think, well, well, what's the point then? And really, they're telling us without telling us that but it's only by staying locked down that we keep the numbers right. down, which immediately makes me think and probably makes a lot of other people think, well, that, surely that just means another lockdown is yeah. coming. Well, exactly right, because if they somehow convince everyone that the only way to stop these things is to have lockdowns, even though the lockdown patently is not actually going on, because it isn't, it's as simple as that. You know, people are flying into the country at a rate of thousands. Nobody knows where they're going, or even in some cases where they've actually been. Um, we've got people visiting each other's houses. We've got people working in offices, according to those getting in touch with me today. And we've basically got all sorts of um, situations going on. Um which are the same as they were last year, except the only difference is the vaccine. So why wouldn't you say it's the vaccine? It's, I think you and I have, I think we're agreed that, we've, that we're, we're holding conspiracy theories at arm's length. You, mm. know, you can feel conspiracy theories circling around you like vultures all the time, uh, you know, ready to, ready to have a go. And you and I have both been fending them off and, yeah. and preferring to find simpler explanations for things based around, you know, incompetence and, panic and you know and, and governmental inadequacies of one yeah. sort or another rather than rather than you know even contemplating uh, ascribing to these people the ability to you know have a, have a big brother world i do i wouldn't trust most of them to run a bath no well as they've clearly shown like, whenever they've done most of them you, you have to begin to wonder at, at the extent to which is it, it, it fear Hmm. I mean, we know from the we know from the from the paperwork that's out there in the public domain that that Sage and others were were urging the government to frighten the people, you know that the people weren't frightened enough of the virus and that and that the, these uh, infomercials and that, that propaganda campaign that's been out there to, to frighten the living daylights out of everybody right. uh, about the threat to themselves and to other people has definitely worked. Uh, and I, as as more and more time goes on, I genuinely wonder at how you get people. Unfrightened. Yes. Well, you know well, what it's worked on. I'm so comprehensively terrified. Yeah. I, I don't know how you. I don't know how you wind that back in. No. But I think the problem from, from that perspective, Neil, is that some people have become terrified, and a lot of people haven't. And a lot of the people that haven't become terrified are the people that can't afford to be terrified. The people who have to go out to work. The people who can't be forced to stay home. People who do jobs which require them to be in a particular place. Like we spoke to a plumber yesterday. You know, we speak to cab drivers. We speak to van drivers. You know, people who work in supermarkets. They can't work from home it's a kind of coincidence to me that all of the people who are terrified seem to be the ones that work from home yes i i i come from a i come from a self-employed background mm. i'm i've mostly a few years exception i've always been self-employed and my dad for most of my life growing up was was similarly perilously self-employed although he, he did something else entirely mm. uh, you know to, to bring in money but i if you haven't if you haven't lived with and really experienced fear of having no money that's something to be scared of yeah you know and com like you say you for compared to going out and possibly catching a virus which is you know 99% survivable yeah threat to losing your your income losing your home being unable to feed your family mm. that really without exception if you're a family man or woman that's the most terrifying prospect yeah it's yeah. losing all of that and when you when you bring into well if you go out you might become ill or make somebody else ill that is definitely on, on a lower rung of of concern mm. for most people yes and also the manifestation of this kind of idea of covid passports 
is also a part of that. You know, the people who are saying things like, oh, I want to know that when I go to a restaurant uh, or if I get on a train or if I sit in a bar, that the people around me are all um, healthy. Well, I'm sorry, just because they don't have COVID doesn't mean they're healthy. They could have all manner of other terrible germs they could pass on to you, you know, and you could end up becoming very ill as a result of being in their uh, in their sort of uh, range. But the point is, is that we live as humans with that risk all the time. And we have a certain immunity to certain diseases. Um, and just because we've been vaccinated for COVID does not mean that you're then safe against everything else. Well, well, the, the, the government's own... Uh... Uh, you know the, the leaflets that that are that are floating about already say fairly fairly bluntly uh, that, that the vaccine doesn't necessarily stop you contracting COVID and doesn't necessarily stop you transmitting it. No, I mean that, that's there in black and white in the in the information that that, that comes. Mm. Uh, you know, so that's 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 clearly sh- sh- the government are are f- are freely saying that they can't be sure about that. The thing I was uh, another bit of footage in amongst the the, the maelstrom. The, the, um, uh, Edwina Curry, you oh, know, God, who, was, yeah. who was filmed uh, saying that she didn't want unvaccinated people anywhere near her in the theatre queue or standing beside her at the theatre bar or being on a train with her. Yes. And my, amongst my many jaw on uh, chest responses to that, well, who's serving you in the theatre bar? You know, who are you getting your gin and tonic and your champagne from? Yes. And, yes. and the actors on stage. Uh, you know, she quoted a figure of your know, 15 million pensioners in Britain who all want to get out there with their itchy mm. feet and get on with their lives. Well, you'd have to have you'd have to have an outside world staffed by pensioners, yeah, and only pensioners on stage in the, in the theatre shows that she wants to go and see. Right. You know, how's, how is she? How is she or anyone else going to distance herself successfully from the unvaccinated? Right. You'd have to. Have a, she'll have to move in a in a world of the over 75s. Yeah, either that or a hazmat suit may, may be required for her if she wants to go out and she can wear one of those. But it's amazing how many people like her want to infringe upon your personal rights and upon my personal rights by demanding that you do something in order to be near them. Personally, I've got no wish to be anywhere near Edwina Curry. I'd be more than happy to be warned of her every uh, appearance wherever she's going so that I can't go there. Fear, full stop, that four-letter word, it is the most pernicious element in life. You know, whatever it is, you know, whatever it is that you happen to be fearful about, fear is the most corrosive, uh, disabling, uh, petrifying element that can enter your life. And we've already got a large number of people, a good chunk of the population, maybe more than half, who knows, who are properly frightened about life itself mm. and testimony like that from Edwina Curry that just ramps it up and and moves us closer to believing that that some people among us neighbors friends relatives or whoever the people that you pass casually are to are to be regarded as unclean and and to be and something to be frightened of yeah. that way that way dark days lie if you, if you follow that road where a group of people are demonised because of their very physical being, mm. that you know, it, it, you know, their very presence is to be regarded as something that's to be, you know, avoided, that you're to be frightened of. That is the road to dark days. Mm. Oh, it and, totally and is. The government, the government have to Boris Johnson or whoever the the powers that be, the the authorities, those that speak up, 
some of them have to start uh, uh, advocating some kind of return to happiness. You know, ha- happiness is an antidote to, to fear. Mm. It uh, really is. is. an antidote to fear. And the, the people that are frightened enough, and we all, we all appreciate why s- steps were taken, or we think we understand why steps were taken to, to enforce the lockdown and, and that fear was used as a very effective uh, lever to, to keep people where they were supposed to be. But the time must surely be coming where people have to stand up and say that there are reasons to be happy, that, you know, that life is there to be lived, opportunities are there to be taken, you know, and we've all got this country and the population within this country, we've got the rest of our lives to get on with. And Mm. never mind me, you know, my kids, everybody else's kids. I mean, I thought that as well about Edwina Curry's statement. The the young people, whoever whoever you regard as young people, uh, who've, who've sacrificed a year of their their lives for, in the main, the older, the older uh, part of the population. Yeah. We've known from almost the beginning that those most at risk were at life expectancy age anyway, and that that huge sacrifice has been there. And I've spoken before about the religiosity about all of mm. this, and so there's even there's even an element of child sacrifice about all of this. Yeah, as a population, we've been asked to sacrifice our children, not in the literal sense. But in terms of their education, their mental well-being, everything about being a child or being an adolescent or a teenager has been sacrificed on the altar of COVID-19. And, you know, enough of that has been done and we have to get on with the rest of it. And they've got someone out there has got to start making the people happy again. Mm. Yeah. I want to live in a happy country. I want to live in a happy, free society where people freely mix with one another mm. and that there aren't elements out there saying that there are groups who, because of personal choices they have made, are to be regarded as pariah, unclean and to be shunned. Yes. Well, this is the thing, you know, I mean, I saw it in, with my own eyes on Monday when we were in the bar, in the pub and there was loads of us in a restaurant. The, the people's faces had changed, you know. They weren't any longer walking, trudging along the street with a mask on, you know, looking downwards and not really catching anybody's eye. They were looking at each other. They were talking to each other. They were laughing. They were smiling. They were joking. And some of them were even hugging each other, heaven forbid, you know. And um, it was great. Absolutely great, because it's what humans should be doing. And you forget that because we haven't done much of it, supposedly, although I believe a lot of people have been doing a bit of it, um, you know, you forget how actually joyous it is to be with other people and just to be even with people you don't know, you know, in a big room outside under, a, a um, you know, a roof of some kind with no walls or whatever it is. And it's absolutely brilliant. You know, I mean, you talk about the Polynesian mariners. Um, when I was referencing earlier about the world sort of revolving around them, which I thought was an intriguing thing, that they thought their ships didn't move and that the cosmos moved around them, which is kind of an interesting idea. Um, But now I get the sense that Nicola Sturgeon and Boris Johnson both are desperately looking around for reasons not to get back to normal. I think, well, we've discussed this previously. I, I think that the, there's, a, there's a terror on the part of the powers that be at letting people back out and seeing the, the enormity of what's happened. Mm. You know, in all the disaster movies, you know, eventually when the, when the, when the, the survivors come, you know, blinking and, you know, and hollow <laughs> out, into the, out into the aftermath and yeah. have to start rebuilding, I genuinely think that for governments here and, and abroad, there's a, they've, got a, they've got a tiger by the tail uh, and the, I think in some ways, it's a bit like, I mean, I'm already, I've got things to do this week and next week. I've got places, you know, places to go because things are starting to kick back in. Yeah. I, I can feel a, a trepidation about going anywhere, about doing anything, because I have become to some extent institutionalized yeah. by the last 12 months. And that's why that's why uh, great uh, thought has got to be put into to getting people back out there. And as you say, I mean, I watched some of the, 
uh, some of your live stream from from the pub, and it was it was great just seeing it was it felt ridiculous to be finding it so uplifting to be seeing people doing something as now as sitting around a pub table, you know, <laughs> with your coats and scarves on, and then I, I looked online and I, people were tweeting photographs of themselves sat outside pubs yeah. in London and elsewhere, you know, and it was it was it was great to see because you know the, the togetherness and community is the antidote to fear. It is. You know, and but it people, feels like you're in. But sometimes they need each other. Yeah, it sometimes feels a bit like you're in some kind of resistance movement, you know. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. I, 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 you know, it's like the it's like the evil empire in yeah. the Star Wars movies right. and the Rebel Alliance. Uh, and and like you said, I, I this thing about me feeling that I have stood still while that you know while everything else has shifted, so that it, it's not me that's in a different place; it's everybody else. Right. You know, that's the. That's the sensation that I have had. Mm. And I've, I've found myself, you know, casting around all over and, and making connections with people that hitherto I, I would never have dreamed of being in contact with. Right. But they've kind of they've kind of emerged as other people who seem to have this the same bemused expression on their faces mm. that I recognise on my own. And you kind of cozy up to them or, online or, or literally. Yes. And and establish that you share the same opinion. And it's like holding on to something that floats in mm. the middle of the ocean. A shipwreck. You think, oh, God, yeah, we can, if we stay together, we might stay afloat. Mm. Uh, and and it, it just seems extraordinary to me. Uh, if, if you'd said to me 12 months ago or two years ago, uh, the sort of things that, that I would be finding relief about, I would have thought that was just unbelievable. Because it does feel that without the... You know, without the meteor striking, or without the you know the the, the aliens invading, mm. it very much feels as if we are we're living through uh, a, a, some kind of disaster movie, and it's made somehow all the more frightening because you can't actually see anything. No, you know there aren't any aliens, and and there, you know and there hasn't actually been a, a meteor strike, and somehow the atmosphere is all the more frightening because of it. Mm. Well, I said this earlier in the show, in the first hour, that you know, when I, when I, funnily enough, I came out of uh, of the pub um, to go and take my son back to get on a train, and outside of London Bridge Station, there's a there's a testing centre now, which they've set up, a mobile testing centre, which actually has a sign that says "Asymptomatic Testing Centre," and I thought this is like some kind of comedy now that we're now testing people who haven't got any symptoms of anything to see whether they've got something that we think has gone away. Well, yeah, as other people have said, you know, what kind of disease is it if you can only prove it's there by, by having a test for it? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, I it's bonkers. That, I felt that from the beginning. I, I, you said, I mean, I, I saw that same thing about the ONS figures showing that whatever it is, 23% of, of, of those who had previously been being casually described as COVID deaths aren't. You know, they, they, they died at the same time of something else. Mm. Uh, and then, and of course, there's also the thing that that, that 130 thousand figure straddles two years i think i'm right in saying that yes it does starting to starting to lump two years together rather than one Mm. um and 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 so you know those those um you know those those figures have only ever been been frightening and and it's it's always a it's always a big number to read um but again it's you know it's just been it's just been another element for people to be you know vaguely terrified of but you're not actually i haven't i haven't seen any of it directly the, you know, this asymptomatic testing and the fact that I, I've heard about people getting positive tests. Yeah. I haven't personally known anyone who has, thank God, you know, died of, of COVID-19. Right. I just haven't. Well, my theory, and, and it, I mean, I, I haven't... It's happening out there. Yeah. No, I mean, listen, I know people that have had it. I certainly know a few people who have died from it, um, you know, like in my sort of extended 
a list of acquaintances and that kind of thing. And a lot of my journalistic colleagues who are older than me that I started off with back when, when I was in my 20s, you know, they're now in their 70s and, and, and 80s. And so many of them have, have got quite sick with it. But um, mm. I mean, my theory mm-hmm. about the asymptomatic business is, is all, has always been if you haven't got any symptoms and you're not sick, um, and you don't really pass, well, we don't know whether you pass it to anybody else, but the test says that you've got it. Maybe the test is wrong. Maybe you haven't got it. Well, well, there's always been the, there's always been the thing about the, the false positives, hasn't yeah. there? Yeah. I mean, it's, that's, there is to stray into that territory of stuff that I just don't feel confident about anymore. Mm. I've read so many numbers, and I've read so many r- reports on, on one side or the other of the argument that, I'm, I'm pulling away from, from COVID and I, I want to concentrate myself. I'm paying attention to, to everything else. I had occasion because of a little bit of work. I had to go through from Stirling to Glasgow on, on Monday of this week. And I went through on the train and, and it was bizarre. I, I mean, the train from Stirling to Glasgow is normally busy. And it was I was the only person on the train that I saw on mm. a four-carriage train. And then into Glasgow itself, I counted eight people apart from myself, passengers right. in the concourse of Queen Street Station in wow. Glasgow. Right. That is a major hub, not, yep. for, not in world terms, but you know, normally, I know what it normally looks like. Yeah. Uh, and then I had to walk the length of, I walked from Queen Street up uh, uh, West Regent Street through Blyswood Square to get to where I was going. Right. And it was weird. I, I, it's the only word I can use. Yeah. It was it was post-apocalyptic. It was there was van there were vans around. Obviously, other people doing a bit of work, delivering something, collecting something. There was a sense that there were people in some of the offices, but the rest of it, it looked like sometimes when you walk upon a, a, a city that's where a bit of it's been cleared so that they can film a you know a Tom mm. Cruise a, a movie. Yeah, it had that feel about it as though somehow the people were being were had been hidden somehow that they must be behind barriers somewhere. Mm. And it was, and I walked, I walked, you know, it was a 20 minute walk each way. And for the length of it, I thought, how on earth is this going to come back? I know. Because I was walking past boarded up pubs, properly boarded up, like gone for good, boarded up delis, boarded up cafes. And I thought, you know, what kind of, uh, you know, labour of Sisyphus is it going to be to get this back, you know, get this boulder Mm. moving again? Yeah. No, I think, listen, you're absolutely right. Neil, we could talk forever, but uh, unfortunately we're out of time. I've got a funny story about Queen Street to tell you. Remind me next time. Uh, I'll tell you about that. It was about getting on the wrong train. Uh, Neil Oliver, uh, a man uh, after my own heart, absolutely and utterly um, befuddled, I think is probably the right word, as to why the powers that be keep saying the things that they keep saying. It doesn't make any sense, does it? Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hi. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 